0: Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF Store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF Store product or service. Visit ETFStore.com for more information. What makes Capital Group's new suite of actively managed ETFs different? It's powered by a company with a seasoned global team, a history of navigating ups and downs, and everything behind it. Give your portfolio active management at the core with our new ETFs. Explore what's behind our new active ETFs at capitalgroup.com ETFs. American Funds Distributors, Inc., member FINRA.
1: Now it's time for ETF Prime
2: All right, joining me this week will be Laura Krigger, Editor-in-Chief of ETF Trends and ETF Database. She's also our resident ETF regulatory expert, and we do have several pretty interesting regulatory topics we're going to dive into today, including this FINRA proposal that would require brokerages to test investors, test investors, before allowing them to invest in whatever uh, FINRA deems are complex ETFs. I covered this uh, a few weeks ago down at the exchange conference where there was a lot of concern over how this could impact ETF issuers. But Laura's going to look at this from more of an investor standpoint, why investors should be concerned with this. And then we'll also uh, dive into another regulatory item, which is this news last week of an SEC probe into ETF revenue-sharing practices uh, where ETF issuers pay brokerages or other third-party intermediaries to push their ETFs. So we'll discuss that. And then if we have time, I also want to briefly touch on yet another foul-up in the ETN space. Uh, This is becoming a, a recurring theme. I honestly feel like I'm to the point where I'm about ready to say, Just shut these things down altogether if banks aren't going to properly support these ETNs, but I'll get Laura's take on that. I'll then be joined by Ben Slavin, Global Head of ETFs, Asset Servicing at BNY Mellon, who they handle literally everything on the back end of ETFs, custody, fund administration, trading, uh, sub-advisory, and they do this for over 1,500 ETFs globally. But I would say there are few people who know the ins and outs of everything occurring in the ETF industry better than Ben. So this should be fun because we're just going to bat around a bunch of different topics, including the expiration of Vanguard's share class patent and what that could mean for ETFs. I also want to talk mutual fund to ETF conversions, uh, of course, crypto ETFs. I've got a bunch of topics, so uh, really looking forward to that. And then to close this week, I have a guest I think you're really going to enjoy. I'll be joined by Oktai Kavrock, director at Leverage Shares. Now, Leverage Shares is a European-based ETF issuer who get this. They offer ETPs with two to five times leverage on single stocks and ETFs. So, for example, they have a three times Tesla ETP. They have a three times Uber ETP. NVIDIA, Coinbase, I could go on. I I mean, they have inverse products, Delta One products. They have triple leverage and inverse arc ETPs. And these all trade on European exchanges. So we'll discuss that lineup, why European regulators have been more comfortable with these types of products, uh, who's using these, we'll we'll get into all of that. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at NateGeracee or you can send comments to etfprime.com. Let's chat with ETF Trends' Laura Krigger.
1: Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights.
3: There's a couple of different ways to slice and dice these various ETFs. They can hold what are called total return swaps. Expect the unexpected.
2: Laura, thanks for uh, joining me. It was so great seeing you down in Miami a few weeks ago.
3: I feel the same way about you. It was uh, just lovely to be in person with everyone and see a bunch of friends and uh, colleagues that I haven't seen in years. So it was wonderful. Very energizing.
2: I, I just wish you and I had a little bit more time. I felt like we were uh, just running by each other for four straight <laughs> days. Uh, but it <laughs> so was good. True. I know we were able to briefly catch up. So, so I did really enjoy that. Um, so look, as it turns out, one of the hottest topics at Exchange was actually this FINRA notice that was issued in March. Uh, formally, this is FINRA notice 22-08. And this has to do with, quote unquote, complex ETFs and mutual funds. And and I'll let you get into this. But in a nutshell, this is a proposal that would require brokerages to test investors before allowing them to access certain products. Now, of course, FINRA is the regulatory body overseeing brokerages. And from my perspective, I I could be wrong. I think their intention is to try and help, uh, and I'm going to use air quotes here, protect retail investors from things like leverage and inverse ETFs. But as I know you know, the concern down at the conference was, well, what exactly constitutes a complex ETF, right? Is it anything besides plain vanilla Vanguard and and iShares ETFs? What exactly does complex mean? And then, of course, assuming you can even define that, how do you then go about administering a – fair test to investors, and should (laughs) brokerages even be in the business of administering a test to investors? Uh, So look, I I know a lot has been made about how this could negatively impact ETF issuers, right? It's effectively gating products, making distribution more difficult than it already is. But I know that you have some specific concerns from an investor standpoint. So let's start there. And feel free to add to my crude description of this proposal. You're absolutely the regulatory expert here. But why does this concern you from an investor standpoint?
3: Well, sure. I mean, you got the broad strokes of it, right? So uh, taking a close look, Look at the proposal. Finra is asking for comments along two main tracks, right? So all the attention is on the complex product side, but there's also uh, a they're they're seeking comment about options trading and whether there should be more uh, regulation and, and gating around the option the practice of options trading by retail investors, too. That's also concerning. So in this uh, proposal they or guidance, they they set out for FINRA members. They say, you know, you have to um, remember your responsibilities as a FINRA member to uh, you know, protect investors and so on. It's all, all very, you know, sounds very good, right? But as part of this proposal, they're asking for comment about roughly three dozen fairly leading questions about how members like you said, should uh, define products as complex, whether FINRA should be implementing special regulations around their use, should there be more supervision, and so on. And like I said, same thing with options trading, should there be more rules around who can use these and so on. So the complicating factor, as you said, there's no standard definition for complex product. Right now, it's sort of like obscenity, right? You're, You're supposed to know it when you see it but that's not a very clear working definition so finra wants to define complex products and the way they've done that the net their proposal is casting is extending so far and wide that pretty much every etf that isn't a pure market beta indexed product would potentially fall into this net so there's a lot of Uh, attention being given to leveraged and inverse products, but things like commodities, futures based products would fall into this net. ETNs, defined outcome, global real estate ETFs, all of those could potentially fall into the definition of complex products. And it's not just ETFs either. Structured notes, mutual funds, other products that use these things, they could potentially be complex products as well. So the the I think the key here is that FINRA is asking uh, if in, investors should have to prove to FINRA that they understand the risks before investing. So it's not just uh, that retail investors should be told, consult your financial advisor or read the prospectus. No, they now have to prove to FINRA that they understand the risks in investing these products. And the form in which that proof takes is still up in the air. But it could, like you say, uh, your brokerage firm could now potentially require an annual test for you to unlock the ability to invest in leveraged products, or you might have to have some uh, high net worth AUM threshold in your account to be able to access these products. And I think this is where the proposal goes too far, right? FINRA's jurisdiction isn't over retail investors. So why should retail investors be forced to get special approval from FINRA members to do what they want with their own money? You know Why should I, as an investor, have to take a test to prove that I understand these risks? Um, and it would be, if this proposal were to come to fruition, it would be the first time in my memory that a regulator ever told members of the public, hey... You know, the security that's being published, uh, that's being traded on a public securities exchange, yeah, actually, that's off-limits to you. So, sorry. Like, I don't think that's okay. And then just one last final point about it. I don't think FINRA has even laid out enough of an argument that there's something broken in the way that the process currently works, right? So, if you look at leveraged and inverse products, most brokerage platforms like TD Ameritrade and E-Trade and whatever – they already have disclosures on their platforms about these products that investors are required to check the little box and say they understand, they, they're aware of the risks. Those risks are also outlaid in the prospectus. They're on ETF websites. You go to any leveraged and reverse, uh products issuer, it's like right there in big, bold letters. These are the risks. And now investors are also going to have to take a test to prove or get special clearance uh, to prove that they understand the risks. I, I mean, at some point, this just becomes burdensome on the investor for the sake of being burdensome. And I think this is a solution in search of a problem.
2: Let Let me ask you this. Um, is disclosure enough? And, and I'm not sure if you listen to it, but I think you know, I recorded this podcast live at Exchange in Miami, and I was joined by uh, your colleagues, Dave Nottig and Todd Rosenbluth. And one of the questions that I asked them was, well, what should be the right answer here? And, and Laura, I mean, I, I'd say I, I think back on the conversations you and I've had over the past several years, we, we've we discussed uh, the, the complexity or the growing complexity of ETFs many times. And, and I think you and I both have some concerns around retail investors getting their hands on products they don't understand. I'm not saying that they should be gated. I'm just saying I think we both have concerns about whether or not those products may be misused. Um, and you know, again, I just don't think there's any question ETF complexity has increased over the past several years. So so I guess my question is, besides disclosure, should anything else be done to better protect retail investors?
3: Well, so there's a lot of answers to that question, a rather, a rather a lot of different uh, tracks and points to make. So first of all, we do exist in a disclosure-based regime, right? So disclosure up to this point has been name of the game. And this would essentially say that's not enough anymore. And then secondly, I I, I do feel that if there's a uh, ruling to be made here, it probably ought to come from the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and not FINRA, uh, regarding the investment worthiness of these particular products. I I don't think that's really FINRA's job to be saying that these should not be uh available uh or or they're not um you know safe or, or so on but like what, stepping back philosophically like where does this end right where if 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 Fenris starts making these decisions you know should regulators start protecting retail investors from microcap stocks or spacs or hedge funds or crypto assets right regardless of whether Investing in any of these potential or any of these um, market segments is a wise decision or a silly one. That's the investor's decision to make. It's not Finner's job to act as my financial advisor. And you also brought up some of the implementation issues around implementing a test like who's going to proctor the exam and how is it going to be adjudicated and you know what happens if you fail and how do you make sure it doesn't systemically discriminate against people and all, all of these things. But when I'm looking at this proposal, I can't help but wonder who it's designed to benefit, right? Who wins if suddenly all retail investors have to jump through flaming hoops to access a significant amount of products that are on the market And the answer to that is FINRA members, right? So when you gate off certain classes of investments, you're forcing retail investors to go back to those middlemen, those intermediaries that they've been slowly moving away from over the past 10 to 15 years. And just forcing retail investors to use an advisor is not how you support that business. It's not going to work. You can't, when it comes to self-directed investing, this is toothpaste. You can't shove back into the tube.
2: Your point on where does this end, I think, is a really good one. And I don't want (laughs) to sound extreme here, but, you know, theoretically, you could make the argument, well, look, um, we know in looking at the Spiva scorecard uh, or, or the Morningstar active passive barometer that active managers as a whole underperform. Uh, on average, right? And there's no persistency to any managers who do outperform. We, we know if you look at the data that low cost funds tend to be better than high cost funds. So to your point, where is it in? Are you going to start throwing up flags for any product that's actively managed or, or has a higher fee? Uh, you could see how th- this is a real slippery slope. Uh, Laura, I do want to touch on some other topics. So let me just ask you this before we move on. Where does this entire thing stand with a FINRA proposal? Like, what happens next?
3: Sure. So the, the FINRA proposal is open for comment until May 9th. That's when the period closes. And I think, you know, if you're used to how the SEC does comment periods, you might be a little surprised, right? The SEC has a something like, a what is it, a 270-day window and then a deliberation period and then it takes some time for the rule to come past. Not really the case with FINRA. FINRA has the discretion to move a lot more quickly. They could pass a rule as early as May 10th, right? So there's a certain amount of urgency here to get your comments in. And if you're going to get a comment in, you got to do it. There's already something like the last I checked uh, last night, it was 461 comments already. Um, Once the comment period closes, the rule chain's got to be approved by FINRA. It's going to be filed with the SEC, and and then it could go effective. So,
2: just feels like there's going to be a ton of backlash to this if something is pushed through. Well, uh, you know, hopefully that's yeah. not the case. Um, okay, another uh, regulatory item I wanted to ask you about, and y- you know when you think about this, this could actually impact how ETFs get into the hands of investors, just like with this FINRA proposal. So the uh, Financial Times reported last week that the SEC has launched a probe, into ETF revenue sharing practices. Uh, So these are payments ETF issuers make to brokers or other uh, third party uh, intermediaries to, um, shall we say, entice them to offer certain ETFs to their end investors. I I, I guess I'll just ask you, I mean, are you surprised by this probe or do you think it's long overdue? What what, what did you make of this?
3: I do think it's A little overdue. This is an issue that's been around for a long time. I remember our friend Crystal Kim uh, did this excellent deep dive on the subject way back in 2019. It's still just as relevant. And I think the SEC has been focusing more on mutual fund sharing, a revenue sharing up to this point. Now they're kind of turning their attention towards ETFs. So The background is this. ETF sponsors have to pay platforms like Morgan Stanley or Merrill Lynch or whoever to have their funds appear on the platforms. This is called revenue sharing. It's long been standard practice in mutual funds. And to an extent, it sort of makes sense in mutual funds because there's different share classes and different fee structures for the share classes and and so on. So you can sort of embed these fees within that to, to what you're charging to investors. ETFs only ever charge one fee, though, right? So, But they're still forced to pay these revenue-sharing payments. And so it, 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 it sets up this sort of pay-to-play atmosphere where uh, ETFs are from issuers who also run the brokerages, right, like Schwab or JP Morgan or Fidelity or whatever – they don't have to worry about revenue sharing agreements because they you know don't have to pay for their own platforms. But smaller players in the space, newer players, do have to pay to get their their ETFs on the platforms. They have to go through all these hoops. They don't often have the extra cash on hand if you're just starting out to to pay that cover charge. So I think that brings us to where we are today. The SEC is looking for ETF companies. Uh, to provide them information about the payments that they're making to brokers, to other platforms, and so on. They, They want the receipts, basically. So the SEC wants to understand how these platforms are making decisions to list or not list, how to list an ETF versus the mutual funds, and so on and so forth. And they want to clearly have any conflicts of interest disclosed for the end investor.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's really what it all boils down to, right? Uh, are there conflicts of interest and are those conflicts properly disclosed? I thought it was interesting. The Financial Times noted how uh, Morgan Stanley disclosed it would charge revenue sharing fees to sponsors of active ETFs, but not passive ones. So then clearly they would have a financial incentive to recommend active ETFs over passive e- ETFs. I thought that was an interesting example.
3: Oh, and it's not just that. I, I mean, it, it, it isn't just that they are... Uh, Leveraging fees on active ETFs, they are specifically making cheaper, excuse me, more expensive active ETFs pay more than cheaper active ETFs. So that means that now Morgan Stanley has an incentive to push these uh, higher price tag active ETFs on their platform over the passive ones because they're going to make more money in doing so.
2: So. Eh. Do you, do you have any sense as to how prevalent this is? Like before nearly every brokerage went to commission-free ETFs, like for all ETFs, I thought that was really the most visible place where you would see ETF issuers paying to be on these uh, special commission-free ETF lists. And that could prove valuable, right? Because you had a lot of investors and advisors that were <laughs> selecting their ETFs based solely on those those commission-free lists. Now, of course, that's all pretty much gone away. So I, I'm just curious, where exactly is this stuff Still happening? Is it primarily wirehouses, and, and and just how prevalent do you think it is?
3: Oh, I think it's still very much alive and well. <laughs> the uh, the you can usually find documentation about which revenue sharing payments an ETF sponsor is making in their financial documents, you know, annual reports and stuff. They they disclose that. You can also find out who they're paying it to in some cases. So we know that places like Morgan Stanley, LPL, UBS, they're all doing this revenue sharing arrangement. And I think, you know, stepping back to Morgan's, the the example you gave about Morgan Stanley, I think maybe this transparency, uh, you know, maybe, how do I want to say it? I wonder if part of the reason that we're seeing so many active ETFs and so much conversation around active ETFs lately and asset flow into active ETFs. It's it's of course it's due to the ETF rule being passed and making it easier for active managers to come into space and so on. But I'm wondering if some of that amplified is amplified by the fact that that's where platforms are gonna make the most money in revenue sharing agreements, right? So if if Morgan Stanley's agreement is commonplace, then yeah, a lot of these platforms are going to make more money from higher price tag active ETFs than they would from low cost beta products.
2: Yeah. So, and I think earlier you hit on one of my concerns and I'm not going to get on a soapbox here. We, we don't have time. But, you know, the problem is that obviously larger ETF issuers have much more financial wherewithal so they can pay to have their products exactly. on these various platforms. Theoretically, that puts smaller ETF issuers at a disadvantage, and. Uh, You know, just like we talked about with the FINRA proposal, ultimately, that can limit ETF options for investors. So I I think that's certainly one of the concerns. Um, Okay, Laura, as I always do, um, I'm going to ask you a a question that has an hour-long answer, and I'm going to give you two minutes (laughs) to to answer it. But I, I have to just ask you about these Barclay ETNs. You know, ETNs are always one of our favorite topics, and last week, they suspended creations on, I, I think, just about all of their, their ETNs, like 30 ETNs. That included some fairly popular ones. ones. Yeah, yeah like, like DJP, right? The uh, IPATH Bloomberg Commodity ETN. Now, of course, this comes less than a month after they suspended creations on their uh, their, their VIX Short-Term Futures ETN, VXX, uh, their crude oil ETN, oil and I, I've got to tell you, I'm starting to wonder if we should just, like, put a fork in ETNs altogether. It just seems like it's one thing after another uh, with, with these. Do you have any quick thoughts on this situation? I mean, I I, I just wonder
3: if it's time to kill off ETNs, you know, permanently. <laughs> okay, so a couple of things real quick. And and FINRA might agree with you, right? Because they've, they've put ETNs in the complex products bucket. But um, so a couple of things real quick. One, uh, yeah, like I feel to an extent that we are watching when we see this going on with uh, Barclays and, and they're shuttering this ETN and now they're shuttering all their iPath ETNs and, and so on. It's a little bit like that scene from the old Adams Family movie where Wednesday Adams is on stage dueling her brother. And then she's got this long, slow death rattle. Stage blood is going everywhere. She takes like 10 minutes to die. I kind of feel like that's what we're at, ha- what's happening with the Barclays uh, ETN department right now. Um, but, you know, it, it's actually, uh, it seems to be something that's localized just for the Barclays uh, for now, um, the Barclays uh, p- products. So the micro sectors and, and the Credit Suisse ones, they seem to be doing just humming along as normal. So I, I think it kind of steps back to or stems back to what we're always saying about ETNs that it's very much the longevity and the health of these products is tied to the the health and the um the it's just tied to the issuer, right? So it's it's very issuer centric uh risk that you've got here that you know, your bank could just decide not to support the product or it could shut down overnight like Lehman Brothers did and then you don't have a any support for your ETNs. So I think, you know, when you're with ETFs, the idea of issuer risk isn't necessarily top of mind. With ETNs, it really does have to be. You have to make sure that you kind of uh, trust the, the issuing, um, the, the issuer in this case. And I'm not sure that it's always obvious whether, because Barclays is a huge bank, right? There's no reason to expect that they wouldn't support these products. So it's kind of a messy thing. It's so messy right now. And I don't think it's going to get any less messy anytime soon. Yeah. I so. just feel
2: like, you know, ETN seem like they're a small piece of some of these larger banks yeah. and they just put them into the corner. I don't feel like, uh, you know, the investor is always put first with, with these. It's not a core business. Uh, for them. And, and I, I don't know, just uh, it feels like the, um, a, again, just the end investor isn't the one who's put front and center. It's really the whims of the bank and, and what they're doing. But in any event, Laura, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, always enjoy our conversations. Thank you for joining it's me.
3: It's fun. It's so much fun. We're going to have to rename this ETF Soapbox instead of ETF Prime. So. That's, <laughs> hey,
2: that's me every week. <laughs> That was uh, for having me on. Thank you. That was Laura Krigger, editor in chief of ETF Trends and ETF Database. Digital assets applications,
1: technology, and use cases have exploded in recent years. Digital assets miners have emerged as a crucial part of this ecosystem and play a critical role in the validating and processing of blockchain transactions. Consider the VanEck Digital Assets Mining ETF, ticker D-A-M, when positioning your portfolio to include digital assets mining companies. Investing involves substantial risk and high volatility, including possible loss of principal. An investor should consider the fund's objective risks, charges, and expenses carefully before investing. To obtain a perspective, call 800-826-2333 or visit vanek.com. Please read the prospectus carefully before investing.
2: My next guest is Ben Slavin, Global Head of ETFs, Asset Servicing at BNY Mellon, who's one of the world's leading ETF service providers. So in a nutshell, they offer a full suite of capabilities to manage ETFs, from custody to liquidity to sub-advisory services. They (laughs) really do it all. I always like to describe BNY as handling everything in the background of ETFs, so everything that you don't always see. And Ben himself, (laughs) I mean, this is someone who was involved with the creation of what turned into iShares back when it was Barclays. He created the ETF distribution platform at SEI Investments. He then went on to join ProShares and create their ETF platform. He was part of the founding team at Wisdom Tree, Uh, just an unreal ETF background. And he's now on the line with me from New York. Ben, welcome back to the podcast.
4: Thanks, Nate, for having me back on the show. Long-time listener and second-time caller. Well, how Thanks.
2: have you? How have you been? You know, I, I I thought I briefly saw you in passing at the uh, exchange conference a few weeks ago. I was just telling ETF Trends Laura Kruger, that thing was like a a, a blur. <laughs> how has everything been going for you? Great. Uh, still still trying to
4: recover from the conference for sure. That was more people than I've seen in probably the last two years combined for sure.
2: <laughs> well, well, look, I have a a number of topics for us to get into. And I I thought what we might start with was something that I was just discussing with Laura Krigger, which is this FINRA proposal on quote-unquote complex ETFs and mutual funds. And and I'll tell you, Laura did an excellent job of laying this out from uh, an investor's perspective, why investors should care about this. I'd love to hear your uh, industry perspective because you visit with ETF issuers day in and day out. Obviously, uh, you want to see your asset servicing clients have success with their products, right? Whether they're complex or not, you want them to have success. So what is your take on this FINRA proposal, which seems to be moving pretty quickly?
4: Yeah, I think this proposal certainly has caused quite a stir. It was the hot topic at the ETF exchange conference from a few weeks ago. I mean, Look, I'm not a lawyer, but after 20 plus years in the industry, I feel like I could play one on TV. And it's absolutely fair to say this could have wide ranging effects in the industry at large, not just uh, for ETFs. But but let's limit it to the ETF side of things. I'm sure Laura did a great job going through kind of some of the implications here, um, certainly for investors. Um, But again, this has some significant impact uh, potential for the industry. Now, FINRA has put out this notice uh, to members for comment, but it really does feel like it's the first step in a regulatory process. And it would appear to be a pretty traumatic regulation of self-directed investors, um, some of which are really driving the growth of many of our clients' products. And um, not surprisingly, I expect the industry uh, already has and will continue to strongly push back on the proposal. Um, but but again, FINRA is a little bit of a different animal compared to the SEC from a regulatory standpoint. Um, and you know this is really a, a, a different approach they have taken. And you know they don't have the same set of procedures like the SEC that our you know clients um, who are asset managers are used to. They they could just issue the rules. But I think very quickly the two key issues here for ETF issuers, and again, our clients, are around the bucketing. What is considered a complex product? So what products could get caught in this net? There's no standardized definition, but um, again, the proposed um, uh, rules are really around anything that uh, is not a, a plain vanilla product. So it's not just about products that are considered risky, but it could also include even products that are trying to reduce risk, like buffered products, which are, you know, designed to try to mitigate some of that volatility. The other big issue, Nate, is really around what these restrictions will really mean and how much um, or how little access will self-directed investors, um, uh, you know, uh, have to these products. And again, um, one of the reasons I love ETFs is the, the simple fact that they have democratized many uh, corners of the investment management landscape, but, but here we could be um, potentially taking a step backwards. It does not appear that these regs will apply to advisors where they would have to pass a test or, or incur some kind of additional qualification but i think there are certainly questions of even if they have the requisite knowledge for for some of these products um but but it would have some some effects uh, potentially uh, for those investors who got restricted would be pushed um to, to use an advisor or or again uh, blocked from access uh, on some of these platforms so again wide ranging implications potentially for the industry, um, you know, which, which could have some impacts on, on future innovation and an and ability to raise assets in some of, the, some of the newer products that we've seen come to market.
2: Yeah, and from my perspective, it just seems like FINRA would be exercising so much uh, subjectivity. Again, how do you define complex? And if you are going to put a test in front of investors uh, to test their knowledge, how how exactly do you go about doing that? And I thought you made a good point in terms of some of these products uh, that are out there that would be deemed complex. They're actually used to mitigate risk and volatility. Uh, Phil Bach, who you may know, longtime ETF industry veteran, He uh, recently publicly commented to FINRA on this, and I want to read you uh, one of his quotes. He said, for many clients, cookie-cutter investment advice is entirely appropriate. For others their goals will best be attained through more complex strategies. It's easy to dismiss those clients as overly aggressive gamblers. But in my experience, the exact opposite is the case. And I, I think that hits on that. I actually, Ben, saw another uh, quote just this morning. Uh, Bloomberg had a nice article on this proposal. And it was from uh, Bruce Bond, of course, who's behind the the Buffer products that are out there. And he, he said, whenever you single out a certain group of products, especially when you call them complex, it scares people. And I I thought that was a really interesting take because what FINRA would be doing is putting certain connotations around products. And I don't know that that's healthy. I think it's always good to make sure we're educating investors on how these end products work. And if there are some some flags that are raised to help an investor conduct some more due due, uh, due diligence on a product, I think that's good. But You know, when you start putting scare tactics into investors by labeling things as complex, when they could be used to actually mitigate risk and volatility in a portfolio, that can be problematic.
4: Yeah, Nate, without a a doubt. And and I do think, um, you know, certainly um, there's there's another issue uh, as well um, regarding this proposal that also gives the platforms or the advisors who are, you know, transacting in these products some additional pause as well. Um, by, the, by the potential that, you know, they could incur some additional liability or, um, again, um, you know, make it potentially uh, uh, problematic or, as you said, scary for, for those advisors to, to, to jump into some of these products as well. So it's not just about the investors. It's also about the, the advisors uh, as well.
2: Well, uh, as Laura mentioned in our prior segment, if you're an industry participant or, you know, somebody uh, tangentially, tangentially <laughs> associated with the space, get your public comment into FINRA ASAP. Um, OK, Ben, so you and I exchanged emails last week and we batted around a few different topics and I, I flagged several that I found particularly interesting. And we'll, we'll see how much time we uh, have here. I'm not sure if we'll get to all these, but but let's try. We'll go rapid fire uh, style. And I want to start with the Vanguard share class patent. Now, I, I'm not sure if you're aware one of my 2022 ETF predictions was that this would become a hot topic. And so you and I are going to help my prediction along here. Uh, But I think most listeners are aware that Vanguard has a patent that allows them to offer ETFs as a share class of their mutual funds. And this can offer uh, several potential benefits, which we can certainly discuss. But this patent is up next year, which that means any fund company could attempt to pursue this. So I, I guess a couple of questions for you. Number one, are you hearing more about this from ETF issuers, like issuers who are interested in using this approach? And then two, how do you think this is going to play out? Because I'm not sure if you saw this last week, but the Financial Times had a piece where they said the SEC might actually have some concerns around this structure, uh, that, that it might not, you know, exactly be easy for a fund company if they do want to pursue this, because the SEC may uh, put up a few roadblocks. So, so what are you hearing on this topic overall right now?
4: Well, well, Nate, your prediction is is right. It's the volume of chatter on this topic has definitely increased. Um, it's it's fascinating to watch, um, and we've been engaged with many of our clients on this topic. My my opinion or belief is that we do expect a firm to attempt this structure next year once the Vanguard patent expires. But I do not expect this to be widespread. We'll probably see more Bitcoin ETF filings um, still pending. Um, versus these uh, filings for for share classes but really once this patent expires other firms will no longer need to deal with vanguard but they will need to deal with the sec and that's where the concerns lie at this stage so the issue was always less about the patent and more about the appetite for the regulators to approve more products using this approach and and i think really at this stage, you know, none of the, the Vanguard um, actively managed funds hold an ETF share class. So to date, it's always been um, around the passively managed products. This would also limit, uh, you know, the potential use case for it uh, to start. But also there are some regulatory issues that, that do remain. But it's clearly an attractive um, potential option And I think that will not stop a few from trying it. But ultimately, the SEC is going to have to approve these. But from an infrastructure perspective, it absolutely works. I mean, we have experience with this in the U.S., but also um, similar multi-class structures in Europe that that we provide the infrastructure for. So it's quite straightforward, and the road is is reasonably well-traveled there. Um, but but again, some of the regulatory issues uh, you know still remain, and, and I think it's going to be a while before um, those are fully worked through and, and the SEC is satisfied to, to allow someone else to come to market behind Vanguard again once that patent expires.
2: Yeah, the SEC angle is really interesting to me, and that a financial Times piece I, I mentioned, they quoted an attorney who said that the entire barrier to entry here was the SEC staff and that they have concerns around uh, what, what they call class subsidization. And really what that boils down to is that, you know, is this structure in the best interest of investors? So, in, in other words, could the activities within the mutual fund share class negatively impact the ETF share class, as an example? So trading costs, taxes, those sorts of things. So I, I just that, – that's interesting. I don't know a lot of people have, uh, have been talking about that. And it does seem like the SEC is going to be the gatekeeper here. Um, let, let me ask you this, Ben. Sort of related to the share class discussion are mutual fund to ETF conversions – So we saw the first of these last year, right? Someone like uh, Dimensional has been very aggressive in this space. Are you still seeing a lot of momentum around these? Because to be honest, I I feel like outside of DFA, I've been a little surprised we haven't seen more of these. I I know it's still early, but there just haven't been a ton of conversions yet. What are you hearing on this topic right now?
4: Yeah, I'm not necessarily surprised we haven't seen more, but at the same time, we've been flooded. Um, at BNY Mellon with inquiries from clients. And the majority of inquiries are from issuers who are not currently in the ETF market or issuers who have a small presence and are looking to turn up the volume. So what are they asking for? Well, they're effectively doing some version of kicking the tires. How does it work? How do I manage the shareholders? What do the brokerage platforms say? Um, so we're in a unique position given our large footprint servicing ETFs, but we're also a large player in the mutual fund space and, and specifically transfer agency. And it's the transfer agency piece here that's really key, as that's the, the, the corner of the infrastructure that deals with the existing shareholder base. And that's really the critical element here. So, so my view, it's going to be a slow roll, but one that will start to roll faster downhill um, a good analogy that it's more like a slip and slide in your backyard, not a ski slope. But um, in either case, there's a chance of injury here. And in this case, uh, financial injury potentially for the asset managers who go through all the trouble and, and may not get to, to where they need to, to be. Um, but from the manager's perspective, it's you know the benefits are quite clear. Retain the assets, retain the track record, lower the operating costs and the tax benefits. But they have a lot of concern here about, you know, again, the platforms um, being able to play ball um, and, and help that conversion. There are issues regarding qualified money, um, such as 401k assets inside the mutual funds and, and the record keepers ability to that are you know, to be wired properly to handle ETFs. And I think there are some basic questions about how much this all costs. Um, and, you know, will their investment strategy um, that's currently in a mutual fund, port well into the ETF wrapper. Um, you know, the 40-act rules apply to both, but not all mutual funds make great ETFs. Um, and then there's a bunch of details uh, that, that need to get fleshed out about fractional shares and, you know, shareholders that don't have brokerage accounts. So all of that is stuff that, you know, we, we can handle. but. The questions are large and and it's more complicated than it may seem on the on the surface. And again, it's not not made for for everybody. But the volume has been quite high uh, is still uh, here in the first part of this year.
2: Your point on four hundred and one k plans, I think, is an important one because I feel like with the mutual fund ETF conversions, four hundred and one k's may be the biggest hurdle. In that, a lot of mutual funds, obviously, they are prevalent in four hundred and one k's and and then making that conversion is a little tricky whereas if let's say we go back to the vanguard share class structure that solves that problem right where you can keep your mutual funds in a 401k but then have uh, etfs and offer those elsewhere or perhaps you could just clone an existing mutual fund strategy in an etf which again allows you to retain the mutual funds in the 401k so i think that's going to be interesting to see how technology And uh, and fund companies solve that challenge. Ben, uh, no surprise, we're running a little short on time here, but I I can't miss discussing my favorite topic. So let's briefly discuss Bitcoin and crypto ETFs. And I I guess I don't really have a direction for us here. Maybe you can just talk about uh, how the existing products out there have been functioning. Uh, I know you service the Canadian Bitcoin ETFs and, and some of the futures based products. How do you feel? Like those are working, and where do you think the SEC stands on a spot Bitcoin ETF?
4: Yeah. Well, what would a ETF Prime episode be without a little banter on crypto? Exactly. ETF? So I'm I am honored <laughs> to to get this question. Um, but I I would say, look, on the regulatory front, um, so much noise, so little action. So at this point, we wait. Um, as I'm sure you know, and all of your listeners know who listen, um, uh, you know the two Korean ETF, which was notable in its approval because it was the first time a 33 Act product has gotten through uh, the SEC. Um, has made sort of another small step right on this continuum um, and kind of you know, at least shattered the concept that only 40 Act products need apply. But again, we're still talking about Bitcoin futures and don't seem any closer to a spot ETF at this point in the U S but you know, just quickly outside um, of the, outside of the U S we've seen quite a bit of innovation um, and we continue to see an incredible amount of product development coming out of Canada and Europe. It's, it's kind of quite amazing to see what kind of choice and innovation is going on north of the border and across the Atlantic from a infrastructure perspective. You know, really, um, it's actually been quite boring compared to all of the excitement around the speculation regarding the the regulatory side of things and the product development. The products have been functioning exactly as expected or as anticipated on our platform. And again, from a servicing standpoint, uh, you mentioned we we do service um, the Canadian ETFs. We also are involved with Grayscale. And many other spot Bitcoin hopefuls uh, in the U.S. And really, the path there is pretty well traveled. There are some adjustments that are need to be that need to be made to support these products. But really, we're the dominant player in the 33 Act space and, and have a, a, a very large portion of the market share for for commodity products like GLD, SLV. You know, to to the future space products like USO and DBC. And these products um, really are, you know, effectively the, the base case. And then you're just making the adjustments to be able to take in the Bitcoin price uh, or, or the Ethereum price, etc., and also connect with those digital asset custodians in um, the same way we get a price for gold and uh, connect into the vault to be able to, to count the gold bars and, uh, and make sure they're there. So, again, well-traveled path. But on the regulatory front, you know, we wait. The next big, really big hurdle um, or, or big marker will be uh, when Grayscale comes up before the SEC uh, here in a couple months, uh, you know, that that the industry is really, really looking for um, alongside a, a couple others that are, are still in the queue.
2: Nobody knows how this is going to play out, but if you had to hazard a guess, you know I have to ask you this. I mean, are we looking – at this year for spot bitcoin etf approval next year 2024 2035 <laughs> i mean do you have any sense or is it just uh, it's anybody's guess at this time
4: it, it's it's any it's anybody's guess at this time and and again there's really even with this recent um approval on the 33 act side there's nothing new um that would indicate um that that the sec has kind of moved uh you know kind of moved their position, or at least been satisfied that many of the questions posed um, uh, have been answered, at least in their mind, and and so um, I guess by by simply stating that, maybe you could say that the time frame is push it. You've been pushed out, but again, there, there's been nothing new there that would give me any indication that 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 an approval is imminent.
2: Well, Ben, fantastic stuff this week. Uh, so great having you back on the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Thanks a lot,
4: Nate. Much appreciated.
2: That was Ben Slaven, Global Head of ETFs, Asset Servicing at BNY Mellon.
1: And now a word from iShares. The shift to a low carbon economy is changing the way people invest. iShares sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability related opportunities and risks such as climate change, Get your share of progress at ishares.com sustainable. Visit ishares.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC.
2: I'm now joined by Oaktie Kavrak, director at Leverage Shares, who I've got to tell you, they have one of the more unique exchange traded product lineups you're gonna find anywhere in the world. So they have ETPs that deliver anywhere from two to five times leverage on single stocks and ETFs. They also have Delta One products, inverse products. These all deliver on the daily performance, which I'm sure we'll get into. Uh, that, that's a very important point. But to give you an idea, They offer single stock ETPs covering companies like Tesla and Coinbase, uh, Airbnb, I believe all of the Fang stocks, uh, among others. They also have triple leverage and inverse ARK products like covering ARKK, the ARK Innovation ETF. There is some uh, wild stuff here. And I should note these all only trade on European exchanges. You're not going to find these in the U.S., and Oktay is now on the line with me from Egypt. Oktay, welcome to the podcast.
5: Hi, Nate. Uh, glad to be on. Thanks for, the, uh, thanks for the
2: invite. Yeah, so what are you doing in uh, Egypt? I know that's not where you're typically based.
5: Yeah, I'm actually here on vacation, so I'm in uh, Sharm el-Sheikh, which is in the northeastern part of Egypt, and yeah, I can tell you it's quite hot. So it's about 92 degrees outside, and, and yeah, I'm usually working out of Sofia, which is... Um, which is where I'm from. But yeah, uh, but yeah, I'm glad to connect uh, wherever, wherever we can around the world.
2: All right, so as I look at your product lineup, this is like a, a day trader's dream. So let's start with some basics. How many total ETPs do you offer? What do assets look like? Just talk about the overall lineup.
5: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So initially we started out with 12 products, and this was back in 20, 2017. And today we have 144 exchange-traded products and they're listed across multiple exchanges, which include London Stock Exchange, Euronext, Paris, and Amsterdam. We have the Italian Stock Exchange. And recently, we listed in Germany as well. And uh, I think you gave a pretty all-encompassing overview at the beginning, but you're right. Um, you know, the, the range is uh, predominantly made up of popular single stocks like Tesla, Apple, Neo, Alibaba, et cetera. And recently, we expanded that range to include certain thematic, uh, thematic products like clean energy and even certain sectors like financials and, uh, and airlines. So at this point, I think we have a, a pretty well-rounded offering, and we're you know, excited about bringing even more products to market soon.
2: And I noted this at the top, but again, the leveraged shares ETPs do not trade in the U.S., at least not yet, Correct.
5: Yes, that's, that's correct, Nate. So these currently trade on European exchanges. And uh, as far as I know, U.S. persons, even if they are using European brokerages, they do not have access to these products. So these are you know, meant predominantly for uh, U.K. and European investors.
2: Okay, before we get into a few of the products, do you have any thoughts on why European regulators have been more open to the, the ETP, such as what you offer? Why are they more comfortable than the SEC? Now, I'll, I'll caveat that by saying, we did just yesterday see the launch of a two-times leveraged ARK ETF in, in the U.S. There are some other single-stock leverage and inverse ETF filings from issuers like Direction and, and Access Investments, but Europe does seem to be far more comfortable with this type of stuff. Why do you think that is?
5: Yeah, so I think this just goes back to the, to the fact that we just have a long tradition of leverage products here in Europe. So we have what are called CFDs, or Certificates for Difference, so these are essentially um, products that are created by particular brokers. You know, they trade OTC, but essentially they allow, you know, investors and active traders to trade with, you know, very high levels of leverage. Um, we, and we also have leverage certificates, which have been quite popular, especially in Germany and the Scandinavian countries. So I would, uh, you know, I would just say that this long tradition has played a huge role. And also in terms of the regulations and the regulators in Europe, I, I think that they have a uh, higher emphasis on disclosure here versus the more i would say the paternalistic the US investor protection mentality of uh, of the SEC so you know uh, i would say that plays a pretty pretty uh, pretty big role but you know there is some fragmentation between the different markets as well so for example you have uh spot bitcoin uh, etps in in certain markets like in Germany and also in Switzerland whereas you have other markets like in the UK where any derivatives or any exchange-traded products linked to any cryptocurrencies are banned. So there is still that divide within the, uh, the UK and EU itself.
2: All right. So I know there are differences depending upon the product, but high level, let's talk about how some of these leveraged shares, ETPs are structured, uh, how you're actually getting the underlying exposure and, and any other nuances you want to point out. And just for fun, I'm going to pick your three times short Tesla ETP and your three times long Arc Innovation ETP as examples. I think we have to go with those two. How are you getting exposure here?
5: Okay. So in terms of leveraged ETFs, um, in terms of product structure, these types of products have been around for over 15 years. So active traders who have been using these products for, for the better part of two decades, they know how they work, they know how you know they're, they're structured, and they know how to take advantage of, of the characteristics that they that they have. Um, what we did is sort of took that same approach and just, well, at least initially, uh, applied it to individual stocks. So we started out with the first ever 2X and 3X Tesla ETPs, and obviously we... Uh, we expanded that range uh, quite a lot. And one of the, uh, the particulars of our product range is that, as far as I know, we are the only issuers of leveraged products that are physically backed, which means that all of our products are, one, fully collateralized, and two, they're collateralized, collateralized with the actual underlying holdings. So if you're talking about, for example, a three-times leveraged Tesla, we actually use a margin loan and go out and buy – um, whatever the, the leverage factor implies, and hold that amount as underlying. So we buy actual Tesla stocks that stand behind the, the structure of the ETP. And in terms of a short product, so if we were to take a short Tesla product or a minus 3X inverse R product, we actually go out and short the actual ETF and hold cash as collateral. So this provides an added layer of transparency, and, uh, and I would say it's, um, it's quite unique in our, in our product offering.
2: Alright, so you may not know this, but I have to ask you what's the best and worst one-day performance across your uh, product lineup that you've ever seen? Like, have you ever had anything go to zero?
5: Yeah, so that one is going to be quite easy <laughs> because we actually had our triple-levered Peloton product delisted because I believe it was in November of last year where uh, Peloton stock dropped about 35% overnight, and, and yeah, that, that meant that the 3X ETP had to be delisted, and this just shows you that you know, you really, you really have to be monitoring your positions carefully, and these are, you know, intended for active traders that, um, that, are, that are aware of the risks. Um, and in terms of the best one-day performer, um, I think it was our 3X Plug Power product. It was up 120% in a day. Um, and slightly after that, I think our 3X Moderna product was, o- was up over 110%. So, yeah, as expected, some wild performances here. Um, and one of the things that I should highlight, and which is part of maybe what makes our, our product offerings unique, is that all of our products come with an airbag mechanism. So unless you have the sharp drops that we just spoke about, um, we have a mechanism in which you know the products undergo what's called an intraday rebalance that sort of prevents uh, these products from going to zero in certain scenarios. So. So, um, you know, if you were to have a product that, you know, sort of declined 30 percent, but instead of declining another 3 percent.
2: Well, it looks like we lost Oaktie from uh, Egypt. No surprise, some technical difficulties. So we will leave it there. Really interesting uh, product lineup. I thought Oaktie did a great job of explaining everything. So uh, certainly appreciate that. That was Oaktie Kavrok, director at Leverage Shares. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. Next week, I'll be joined by Yasmin Daya-Bilgers, head of ETFs at Engine Number no. 1. So she's going to discuss uh, their ETF lineup, and she'll get into some detail on how they're seeking to drive corporate change through active ownership. And then the bad investment companies, Tommy Russo, will spotlight the bad ETF. You're definitely going to want to hear about uh, that one. Until then, have a great week, everyone.